Uh, December 21st, mark it on your calendars, and more importantly, a Sunday evening, December 21st, be praying about who you would invite to hear the greatest story and the greatest news that any human being could ever hear, and that is that God loves us. And so we want to just pray, pray about that and want you to be praying for people that you'd invite. Uh, one of my favorite, all-time favorite stories is told of uh, the head of a large company who needed to call one of his employees about an urgent problem he was having at the office. He picked up the phone. He dialed the employee's home phone number. When it was, he was greeted with a child's whispered, Hello? And uh, feeling a little put out by the inconvenience of having to talk to a youngster, the boss asked, Is your daddy home? To which the small voice whispered again, Yes. He said, Well, may I talk to him? And to his surprise, the small voice answered, No. And wanting to talk with an adult, the boss then said, Well, is your mommy home? And again, he heard, yes. He said, well, can I talk to her? And again, he said, no. And now knowing that it was not likely that this young child would be left alone, the boss decided to ask, is there someone else that's there watching over this child? And said, is there anyone else there besides you? And the little boy again answered, yes. Well, who? He said, a policeman. He said, a policeman? He said, well, what, can I talk to him? He said, no. So why not? So he's busy talking to mommy and daddy and the firemen. He said, what? And he's getting a little bit nervous. And he heard what what sounded like a helicopter in the background. He said, well, what's that noise? And the little boy said, that's a helicopter. And all of a sudden, the little boy goes, oh, wow, just landed in the front yard. And this guy was getting a little bit shook up. And and he said, what what, what are they doing? He goes, they're looking for me. And I, and I love that story because did you ever have one of those days? You know, one of those days, you know, those days when nothing seems to go right. And even after you've made the adjustments that you think will help resolve the problem, the adjustments even make things worse. If you've ever had one of those days, perhaps you can relate to Alexander. Alexander is an eight-year-old boy who's the central character in a children's book entitled Alexander... And the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And in the book, we read that Alexander has one of those days where nothing seems to go right. He has back-to-back disappointments and tragedies like you just can't imagine. It's just one continuous downer after the other. And this is what he writes. He said, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. When I I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell right then it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. After a terrible day at school, a horrible visit with the dentist, a no good stop at the shoe store, Alexander slumps in his chair at the supper table and continues his saga, his troubles, and his woes, where he writes, there was lima beans for dinner. I hate lima beans. There was kissing on TV. I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. And I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. On top of that, the cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And he goes on and says, I think I'll move to Australia. (laughs) You know, and, and as adults, we laugh at Alexander's view of a very bad day and long for the simplicity of those so called problems. I would love to have a day like Alexander had. keeps things in perspective. Well, today in our ongoing study through Luke's gospel, we come to one of those days in the lives of Jesus' disciples, one of those days that will teach us much about ourselves and the power of God. If you've got your Bibles, hopefully turn with me to Luke chapter 8. We'll pick up the account in verse 22 through 25. In this passage, we will learn from the disciples' experience as they too, as many of us, had one of those days. It says, now it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. 
But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. What first amazed me as I read through this section was how brief yet vivid Luke's description was of one of those days in the lives of the disciples. There's only four verses, but as we will learn, and as many of you know, I can turn those four verses into about a day and a half. So, you know, don't get too excited. Oh, only four verses today. But when we look at this, there's so much depth, you know, because every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is so deep and so meaningful, and there's so much that we can learn from it. And so as we look at this, there's, there's much to consider. But in this passage that we see once again, we're going to see the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we'll examine two points that I've outlined for you. The first one is that we're going to see the reasons for this display of His mighty power and also the results that take place because of it. Uh, First of all, let's look at the reasons for this display of power. We find that in verses 22 through 24. We read, again, now came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat and he said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And so they launched out and they headed that direction. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake and they began to be swamped and be in danger. In verse 22, we're told that Jesus instructs his disciples to get into the boat and to go to the other side of the lake or to the other shore. In Mark's account, we're told that this event took place at the end of the day or it was the evening time. In Mark chapter 4, it says that it was evening at this particular time. It was at the end of another exhausting yet productive day. If you recall, Jesus had just taught about the sower and the seed, the four types of soil, the soil that uh, is an inch deep and has no roots or no structure, the hardened path that when the seed of God's word falls on it, just bounces off and the birds of the air come and take it away. We saw that there was receptive soil to a certain degree, but the thorns choked out the productivity when the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, when, when we get back to, as we would say, we get back to the daily grind of life, we forget about that which we had just heard. And then there was the receptive soil, the soil that says, man, I heard what God said and I've acted upon it. And it produced a harvest or fruit. Every one of us who have acted upon the word of God when we have heard that we are sinners separated from God and that we need to repent or turn from sin and turn to God. We need to trust God's plan that the way to be reconciled or made right with God is to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and him alone, his death on the cross, and the power of his resurrection. And when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says we're children of God to those who believe in his name. Transformed, born again is the word that Jesus used. And none of us can get to heaven unless we're born again. By the will of God, not by our own human efforts, it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. And when one is transformed, if we're in Christ, everything old is passed away and all things become new and now there's evidence of that transformation that has taken place the fruit of the spirit there's love and peace and patience gentleness joy and and, and we see self-control are all part of the objective evidence that people can see in our life that we're no longer who we used to be And he had just gotten finished talking about that and how faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God and that we're not to just be hearers of the word only but to be doers. And he went on and he talked about that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and we see that in Mark's gospel and that the mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds and yet when it was was put into the soil and the soil received it, it, that it would grow to a plant that was 10 to 12 feet tall and how just the faith of a mustard seed would grow in such a huge plant and have such great productivity. Jesus would later say these words. He said, if you have faith, even as a mustard seed, one can move mountains and nothing shall be impossible to you. Matthew 17, 20. And so it was at the end of this long, exhausting day that Jesus commanded his disciples to sail to the other side of the lake, to get in the boat, to just go out and and relax and to launch to the other side, to get away from the multitudes of people, to find a place where they can find just some peace and quiet and rest and recover. And he said, get in the boat and we'll go to the other side of the lake. And that's what he did. And it was at the end of that day. And there's nothing unusual because that was the way that it was every day when you're with Jesus. Man, it was a 
day of excitement. It was a day of enthusiasm, which means in Theo or of God. We see God working continuously, and you see what the effects that he has on the lives of people who receive him gladly, who are receptive to his truth and then act upon it. Man, that's a great day, and I hope that your days are like those days, that every day is filled with the, the excitement, the enthusiasm, the abundant life that Jesus said he has come to give it to his people. Man, it should, there should never be a day that's boring in the life of God's people. And as we look at this, they get in the boat, they got on the other side, and everything's kind of like business as usual except something changes in verse 23. And we see but, which is a strong contrast to the peace, the tranquility, the calm that is taking place as they sail across the lake. But, but as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And we're told that a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. It's a strong contrast from the routine. In fact, it's 180 degrees from the ordinary. You know, Luke records a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake. And to understand that, we need to recognize the geography and the topography of the area. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountain ranges. And as a result, you'll see thermal pressure or changes that take place. And in between those mountain ranges are, are valleys or, or, or ridges that the wind would go down through it. And the warm weather from the desert would hit the cold weather or the cold water of the, of the sea. And it would come and there would be this thermal uh, type of... Uh, an effect that would take place. And it says that it descended upon the lake. It was suddenly it descended upon the lake. And anyone who's ever sailed there, these fishermen would understand and recognize it. Matthew tells us it occurred suddenly and without warning. It came out of nowhere. And he uses the word seismos, which we get our English word seismic or earthquake. It was as if an earthquake struck them suddenly. And any of us who've lived in Southern California long enough have experienced the sudden terror of an earthquake, that heart-pounding moment when shaken awake by a vibrating house. Remember the old beds, you know, at the Howard Johnson's back in the day, you put the quarter in, the bed starts shaking a little bit. Well, that's God's version of that, you know, and it's kind of like if you've ever been in bed and your house starts to shake and your bed starts walking across the room, then you understand that it's the same word that's used. It's kind of like we know living in Southern California that there's a great possibility that we can experience an earthquake. We know that and understand that. But yet it's always so distant. It's always in the back of our mind. It's, some, it's a defense mechanism that we can go through and continue to live life, not in the constant state of, you know, paralysis by analysis. Is today going to be the day? Is this going to be the day? Is this going to happen? Is the disco ball going to fall from the ceiling here? I mean, what's going to, you know, it's like, and, and, and it's, but it, we know that it's a possibility and yet we always put it kind of to the back, kind of like our mortality. We know that we're all going to die. It's appointed for man to die once. Then comes judgment. We know the, 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 the wages of sin is death. We know the odds are one to one. Uh, and, and yet at the same time, we, we put it in the back of our mind and it's something that happens to somebody else and certainly not to us. And so the word suddenly means it was a heart-pounding moment. And you know, and isn't that the way that it is for most of us as we experience the storms of life on one of those days? We know it's always possible, but we just think it'll happen to somebody else and not to us. You know, the moment comes with that warning, like, you know, the, the day I came home from a run and took a shower, and without warning, I find a lump in my groin. And, and you go, wow, what is that? That came out of nowhere. But do you have history in your family? No. You know, and they ask you all the questions, like, no, 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 no. Wow, that's weird. And you go, wow, yeah, it is, huh? And, 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 and all of a sudden, it's like suddenly, out of nowhere. You know, on Monday when I found out again that, oh, we found a nodule on your lung, and so you're going to have to do something, get a test, and we'll see what that is. And even though I knew it was a possibility, it's still something that you don't dwell on. It's like you live each day because if today is the last day God gives you this side of eternity, might as well enjoy it. I don't want to worry about something that's going to happen next week if God calls me home today. So might as well live life to the fullest today in the moment of time and, and not have no regrets because this is the moment that God has given all of us as a gift to enjoy and to listen up to what he's trying to tell us. But it always seems to happen, you know, suddenly. And then the journey begins. Then the radiation starts or the surgeries or the chemotherapy or whatever it is. And, you know, I get our prayer requests each week and I, and I look at that and I pray for all that we see that's going on. And, you know, and we see, you know, here's an aneurysm or someone in their family died unexpectedly which is always an interesting thing because we all expect to die, but it's unexpected when we do. 
And, uh, you know, and, and we got pink eye and, and we've got typhoid and, and breast and all other forms of cancer and heart attacks and auto accidents and laid off after being employee of the month. Suddenly, you know, financial difficulties that happen suddenly or we're told by a spouse that, you know, they don't want to be married anymore. You know, they just, you know, they need to go find themselves or they're just not interested or whatever it is. And it's like out of the clear blue or suddenly we hear these types of things or suddenly we catch a spouse who is having an affair and it's suddenly. You know, the events of life seem to occur suddenly seismic-like. They just shake our world to the very foundation. They just kind of sweep down upon us. Like Job, many of us have been hit with a head-spinning series of events that throw our world into convulsions. And even if we're fortunate enough to see it coming, you know, it could come and this may happen, but when it does, it's, it's, it just still seems suddenly. You know, and, and it doesn't make it much easier to get through one of those days. And though the disciples had no way to know during this particular stressful circumstance, what we know in hindsight, and we've got the advantage that they didn't have, we know that that miserable storm was appointed by God to teach them about God and His power in their lives. This choreography of heaven was essential for their spiritual development and it's a vital principle of spiritual life and I want to share this with you and I hope you take notes and I hope that you listen carefully and that is this. Without difficulties, without trials, without stresses and even failures, we would never grow to be what we should become. Without difficulties, trials, stresses, and even failures, we will never grow to become what God wants us to become. He wants to conform us into the image of His Son. And if you've read your Bible at all, you'll know that His Son, our Lord Jesus, suffered for our sake. This path is not an easy path, nor is one, as I've mentioned before, that any of us would choose to sign up. But it is the chosen path that God uses to bring about our spiritual maturity. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no way to get around it. It's the way it is. As one person wrote, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. And the key is almost. See, storms are God's way of bringing us into his deeper grace. Without adversity, we would be insufferably self-centered, prideful, flat-dimensioned, empty people. On my way back home um, with Linda on Friday, I had a PET scan on Friday, and God has a way of getting my attention in those machines like no other place I've ever been. And as I was laying in there, and he was reminding me to be still, and he knows that he is God, not only did he remind me, but so did the technicians. And in that one moment where I kind of freaked a little bit and peeked and lifted my head up and looked down the tunnel and looked into the room where they were monitoring their equipment and I saw the gal go like this. I figured that was probably not a good thing and I immediately lay back and hoped she didn't see me. But I know she saw me. But as we were coming back in the car, I told her that I believed that I could never become the kind of pastor that God wants me to be until... I was blessed by him with cancer. And, and, and there's just no way around that because I know me, but I don't know me as good as God knows me. And I'm learning to put my priorities straight. And there's no greater priority than to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and then to love your neighbor as yourself, to love people as God loves them. There's no greater priority than to live with a sense of urgency for the eternal and not to get hung up on the things that are temporary in life. As one friend told me once, his dad gave him these words of counsel. He said, uh, don't, don't sweat the small things. And the second thing is, they're all small things. And I like that. 
because I'm a guy and that's about the depth of my understanding of certain things. <laughs> but, um, but I like that. It was easy to grasp. You know, I'm learning to be more patient, empathetic, hopefully understanding and to truly appreciate each day as his blessing and the lessons continue. But I'd never be who I am if it wasn't for the blessing of cancer and I won't be who God wants me to be without the, the trials and the adversity of life. And so the storm in Luke was a spiritual step for the disciples, just as every one of our storms are spiritual steps for us. And though they didn't know it at the time, we have the benefit of hindsight in the Word of God to teach us exactly what it was that God wanted them to know. See, perhaps such a storm is raging in your life. I'm not self-centered enough to think that I'm the only guy in the world that's struggling with things because I see it every day. I read it as I'm updated. I know that as you've come here today, there's a storm in your life. And God's using that storm. And the encouragement is that, you know, you're being buffeted and you wonder, you know, if you're going to make it through. And perhaps a relationship is foundering and about to sink, or the buffeting may be a stress of your job, or finances, or some terrible disease. You know, your storm may be an, you know, an, an uh, errant child who has chosen to do things that not only break your heart, but destroy their lives in the process. See, whatever the trial, you may think you're drowning, but you're not. And I want to encourage you as one of God's children, if you truly are born again and you've truly repented of your sin and you've turned from sin and you've turned to God and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, his death on your behalf and the power of his resurrection and you've received him as your savior and to those who receive him, the Bible says that we become children of God to those who receive him or believe in his name. See, we have been called for a very specific calling. We have been chosen for a very specific calling. And it's one that is unfortunately not taught enough from the pulpit for fear that some may be offended or turn away or go other places where they hear things that make them feel better about themselves. And our specific calling is laid out for us and a couple of examples of that are found in 1 Peter. If you'll turn there with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Hebrews, James, and 1 Peter chapter 1. And we can't get away from these words. We can't get away from this truth. And I think that the truth sets us free as God promises. In the midst of our storm, in the midst of our adversity, in the midst of our trials, we are told, 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this time you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials." That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. He goes on in the fourth chapter of the same book, Starting with verse 12, we read, And beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. How many of us get so surprised when those things happen? He says, don't be surprised. Expect it. This is how God works. This is how he brings about his great work in our lives. This is how he builds us and conforms us into the image of Christ. He says, when these things happen, don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you, have, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that right, the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that will be complete, mature men and women of God, lacking in nothing, James tells us. And so the question that you have to ask yourself that I ask me is this, you know, how, how do I know whether I truly have faith? How do I know if I'm really a child of God? How do I know if I'm really born again? How do I know objectively and not emotionally? How do I really know? Because we've read enough in the Bible that there are those who emotionally receive the word gladly, but when stress, persecution, affliction comes along, they say, oh no, that's not for me. How do you really know you're a child of God? Praise God. The way that we know is that when we go through times of persecution and affliction and stress and the storms of life, we're comforted by the very presence of God who lives within us. And that's the only way we know that. How do we know anything in life without an objective test? How do you know you're as knowledgeable as you think you are? You're given a test. How do you know that you have the endurance that you think you have? You're given an objective test or measurement. How do you know that you're really as strong as you think you are? It's very simple. You lay down on a bench and you go ahead and you put it in. You put the pin in and how, how, how much weight can I lift? That's how strong I know that I am. See, it's an objective measurement and we need objective measurements because the heart is so wicked and deceitful. Who can understand it? Not us, but God. And so we may believe things about ourselves that are not true. Or we may believe things about ourselves in a negative way that aren't true. See, God's grace is perfected in our weakness. And when we're weak, then He is strong. And no one wants to hear that. But that's how God chooses to grow us up in the faith. And it's a wonderful thing to know because some of us project, if that ever happened to me, I don't know if I could ever handle that. And all I'm here to tell you is this, that if you're truly born again, you've truly trusted in Christ, His grace will be sufficient in your time of need. And how awesome is that? But we need to walk with Him every day. We need to hang on to Him because He's hanging on to us. And as we look at the storm, there's something that we see here, and, and that is, is that we, are, we have been called to suffer for Christ's sake, to suffer in God's grace, to be a testimony to those who have no hope, so that as they see us suffer in peace and in joy and with an assurance and a confidence in our God, they too may find their hope in Jesus Christ. On Monday when the doctor came in with his chart. And I, you know, I'd, I had forgotten all about the fact that I'd taken all those tests and Linda came with me and she was there and, and she remembered and, and, you know, and he came in the room and, and I know the drill, you know, and, you know, and, I, and I immediately I put my leg up on the thing and I strap everything over this way and, you know, and I, he looks to see what it all looks like and, you know, and we got, I got it down, you know, I've, you know, and I never got anything down like that before, but I got that down and he just kind of went, oh, that looks fine. I went, wow, that's not exactly the in-depth look that I was hoping. And then he had his chart, and he was kind of, he had his chart, and he was doing this. And, you know, when your doctor does that, pick up right then and there. We got some news coming, you know. And he's like, well, um, oh, um, we got the results of your CT scan, and we, there's a nodule in your lung. Um, so there it is. And it was like... Well, you know, and he started to share, you know, what test and what kind of surgery, if it's necessary, and all that kind of stuff. And I said, okay, well, thanks, Doc. And, you know, and I walked down the hallway, and everybody was huddled there, you know, all the people that I'd come to know. And I was like, seriously, did you ever see the movie Dead Man Walking? Yes. I was like, I'm walking, dead man walking, 
I was like, man, you know. I told Linda, I said, you know, I I told her the next day on Tuesday, I said, I got to go back and cheer everybody up. It's like, it was, it was brutal, you know? It's like, you know, and they felt bad for me, which was nice, which meant that, you know, that, that I must have made some good impression on them because, you know, at least they're not cheering. <laughs> That's always a good thing. But, um, but it was like, I said, man, I got to go cheer everybody up. You know, it's okay. And I had an opportunity. I've had it to do that. And just to let people know, you know what? It's okay if you know God. It's okay if you've trusted in Christ. It's okay because we can't lose. If we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. And if he decides to leave us here, then we have the opportunity to serve him every day. And it's a gift from God to do that. We have the abundant life on this side of the curtain and abundant life on the other side. I mean, it just, it's, it's a no-lose situation. And see, not only does, does God use trials and the storms of life to bring us to maturity... But he uses how we persevere under these stressful circumstances of life to bring others into a saving relationship through Jesus Christ. We can't miss those opportunities. In the midst of the fury and confusion, if you're in the middle of one of those storms, if you ask God to meet you in your deepest distress... You can and will ride those afflictions to new spiritual heights. And such an act of trust at that moment in time, it'll become an epiphany on the landscape of your spiritual life. It'll be a turning point. It'll be a new level of depth that you'll have in your walk with the Lord that you never thought were possible. But it is as He ordains those things. So if we go back to Luke 8, you know, as the storm continued with all of its pounding violence with the sails and rags, you know, God was using it to to address a spiritual concern. And we discover this a little bit later, but the spiritual concern that he had with regards to his disciples was he knew that they were timid and that they were men of little faith. Because in Matthew's account in chapter 8, he says... You're you're timid men of little faith. And think about it. How can God use timid men of little faith to accomplish His purposes? He can't. How can He use men and women of little faith? Paul wrote to Timothy, God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity or of fear but of love and of power and of discipline or a solid mind. He hasn't given us a spirit of timidity or fear. He has given us a spirit of power, a power that comes through His power, working through our weakness. And see, Jesus knew that His disciples had little or no faith, but they thought they were pillars of faith. They thought they could do great things for His kingdom. And what he revealed in this time or this stressful moment of his life, he revealed to them that they didn't have the faith that they thought they had. And in order to effectively use them and us, he must do whatever is necessary to grow our faith. Because faith that is not tested can never be trusted. Period. If you'll notice in verse 23... How's Jesus handling the storm? Oh, he's sound asleep. He's laying on a cushion in a hard bow of a boat, sound asleep when the storms of life came crashing down upon the disciples. He's sound asleep. And there's two ways to look at this, and the first way is wrong. And the first way is always this. When I need him, he's never there. Where's God in the middle of my problems? He's sound asleep. When I need Him, He's not there. And that's, not a wrong, that's a wrong way to look at it. That's not right at all. And that's exactly their accusation that was made in Mark's account when they said, oh, don't you care that we're about to perish? And not only are we going to die, but you're going down too. And everything that you've promised us and everything that you said was going to happen and your kingdom here on earth and all the promises that you made are going down with you. And he was sound asleep. 
And you know why? In his incarnation, Jesus completely entrusted himself to God the Father. He knew he was in great hands, and he trusted in him. But they misunderstood his sleeping for not caring. You know, the Bible says that he knows every hair on our head. The Bible says he knows every sparrow that falls. Sometimes, you know, the devil puts into our mind, yeah, well, he's so busy counting sparrows falling, he doesn't have time to think of you. And you know what? And it's not hard for him to keep track of. And I look out here, and I'd have a real hard time keeping track of all the hair that's falling. But on the other token, I'm glad God didn't have a problem with any of that, you know. And the bottom line of it is, is that, you know, the bottom line of all of it is, is that God knows every wave that falls on us. He knows the rate of our hearts while the waves fall. He knows our respiration rates. He knows the innermost thoughts in our minds, our emotions, our dreams. He knows as I was hyperventilating in another machine. He knew, and I thought of that, and I took great comfort in knowing, you know what? He knows my heart rate right now, and he knows how I'm breathing a little heavier. I just hope nobody else knows. And, uh, you know, and you just, you take comfort in all that. He just knows. And even if the boat sunk, God was there. And all you got to do is read Psalm 139. God is everywhere. His presence fills the universe. The storm was necessary for the disciples' spiritual development. Our storms are necessary for our spiritual development. It was in the midst of the storm that they acknowledged him, Jesus, as master when they cried out in verse 24, Master, Master. It's the same word we've seen in our study already in Luke chapter 5 when Peter was in the boat and said, Master, we have fished all night and caught nothing, but nevertheless at your will we will let down the nets. It is a word that means that you are the captain of our ship and we will do whatever you say even when it doesn't make sense, which is exactly what he told John's disciples to tell John, blessed are those who do not stumble over me. Blessed are us who do not question how God does things and we trust him explicitly, implicitly in those areas of life. And even when we don't get it, we still trust him. I don't get it, but I still trust him. And he'll reveal whatever he wants me to know because I'm on a need-to-know basis. In the meantime, I want to make sure I take advantage of every opportunity that he gives me and not miss the platform that he has given me and you to suffer in grace and dignity so that others will be attracted to our Savior. Now let's look at the results, kind of putting it all together. The results of Jesus' display of power. In verse 24, we look at it and it says, And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. There was an immediate quiet that unfolded. The disciples went and woke him and said, Master, Master, we're going down. We're going to perish. And I wonder how long it took them before they woke him up. You know, guys, we don't ask for directions real quick. And they're fishermen, you know, and they're still like, hey, we're fishermen. We know how to handle this. We've been out on the sea before. We've been out here when the big storms have hit. I wonder how long it finally took, but, man, it probably didn't take much, much time at all based on Jesus' response to them. But it was like, though they had been with him for such a great time, they had seen his promises, they had seen the things that he had done, they had seen his miracles, they had listened to his preaching and teaching, they had seen him even raise folks from the dead, They thought everything was going down with the boat and how foolish that is. They were so wrong and so are we when we panic during our trials. See, Jesus demonstrated his power over and over again in their lives and he has in our lives. But, you know, in the midst of difficulty, somehow we imagine that all is lost. And I just ask myself the question, when am I ever going to learn? When am I going to learn? I'm a slow learner. And I guess I'll learn after God continues the tests. Then I'll know what I think I know because I'll be able to objectively measure the fact that what I thought I knew, I knew because now I know. (laughs) And there you have it. Once again, he displayed his power. Notice that it says he rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and was calm. He got in, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Be quiet, be still. Literally said, Be muzzled. And the wind died and it was completely calm. And the tense indicates that the wind immediately stopped. And in every gospel account, all three of them, it speaks of a sudden calm. There was an eerie silence. 
It was instantaneous, as everything God does was instantaneous. And anyone that's ever been a sailor knows how miraculous that is, that a raging storm or gale force or volcano, basically, or a hurricane of wind would just stop when Jesus said, stop, be still, be muzzled. He rebuked the winds and the storm. And it should be noted that Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves, just as the same word is used in connection with demonic beings, Jesus rebukes Satan. And what's wonderful about it is this, is that even if the enemy, that lion, that lion who's roaring, a roaring lion looking for those who can devour, even if Satan is behind our afflictions and distress and persecution, he can never do anything more than God allows And what he means for evil, God will overcome for good. Because we know that God has caused all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. We can read about the life of Job and know that Satan couldn't do a thing to Job that God didn't allow. And even then, it was within parameters and restrictions. And Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves, and I believe that the enemy was behind that storm thinking how foolishly he thinks that somehow Jesus fell asleep and now he could get rid of him. And how foolish that is. Because no one and nothing will thwart the plans of God. Nobody. And I love that. It was great. And as I read through that, I thought, you know what? Don't allow the devil to create doubt in your heart as to the sufficiency of Christ. He is totally sufficient. For every one of our needs. And the greatest need is forgiveness. His death on the cross is sufficient. For all who believe. His resurrection from the dead is sufficient. For all who believe. It's not Jesus plus our efforts. It's not our efforts plus Jesus. It's not our efforts alone. It is Jesus and his sacrifice alone on the cross. That is sufficient to meet our greatest need of forgiveness. Have you trusted in Him and Him alone? Don't doubt God's word or His promises. There's something we read through real quick because it's only four verses. We can buzz right through this, but I want you to notice something. Jesus said, get in the boat and we're going to the other side of the lake. If He said they were going to get to the other side of the lake, why would they think they were going to drown in the middle of the lake? How many times do you and I doubt the promises of God? If he says that I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, he'll be with us always to the end of the age. If he said he goes and prepares a place for us, and he said if that wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you that. But because I do, I go and prepare a place for you so that where I am, you will always be. Those are promises that he makes, and and they're sufficient for us. His word is good. You can bank on it. You can live upon it. You know, don't be afraid. Be, be afraid of nothing. Be strong and courageous. He told Joshua, don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Don't have a spirit of timidity or fear, but have one of power and love and strong, a strong mind. That's the spirit of God who has given all of his people. He resides within us that fear that never, we never need to fear. The only fear that anybody should ever have as God's people is the fear of God. And a healthy fear of respecting Him and revering Him and honoring Him and worshiping Him because He is God. See, don't ever believe the lie that Jesus doesn't care for you. Because we know that's a lie because even when you and I were sinners, God sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. So we know He cares for us. We know He cares for us because He says, Cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. Don't ever believe the lie that tells you otherwise. Don't ever believe the lie that tells you that Jesus is sound asleep and where is He now in your time of need. He is right where He always is. He's the Lord God of the universe. His presence fills the universe. His presence fills our lives who have believed. His presence is immediately available. He is right there with you always till the end of the age. See, when Jesus is present, there is always peace and calm and quiet in the midst of the storm. And notice also, his display of power results in a very intelligent question. And the question is found in verse 25, and that is this. Who then is this? Who then is this? 
that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he? That, my friends, is the ultimate intelligent question. Who is this and who can do such things? Who can open the eyes of the blind? Who can open the ears of the deaf? Who can heal lepers or cast out demons or cause the lame to walk or, the, or to forgive sins? Who can raise the dead? Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? And the question that they ask out loud is a question that they knew in their heart. We know who can control the universe. In Psalm 107, 24 through 30, a psalm that they knew and that paralleled what they went through is this. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and they went down in the depths. Picture that boat going up and down and up and down. They've experienced this in their peril. Their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. Who then is this that the winds and the seas obey his command? We know who this is. This is God. This is Jehovah God. We know God and what he can do. Psalm 65, 7, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves? Psalm 89, 9, God is addressed directly. You rule over the surging sea when its waves mount up and you still them. In Psalm 104, but as your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. In Psalm 106, 9, it describes God's deliverance of Egypt, from, of Israel from Egypt. He said, you rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. All waters flow and cease to flow at God's simple command. Logic demands, therefore, that Jesus Christ must be the creator God. The disciples' understanding of who Jesus was soared into the universe. Who then is this? Who is Jesus? He is God in human flesh. And don't you ever allow somebody to tell you that he's anybody less. He is God in human flesh. And this, of course, is the unified testimony of the entire New Testament. The Gospels, through Revelation, bear delightful testimony as to who Jesus Christ truly is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and through Him all things were made. And without Him nothing was made that has been made. The book of Genesis says, in the beginning God created in the book of John, the gospel says, in the beginning God created, and yet it says that Jesus Christ created, and if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, nothing would be created. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, we're told, and yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. For by him all things were created in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, to the prophets, in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, Hebrews 1. And in Revelation 4.11, we're told, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The intelligent question that is answered, the logic of Jesus calming the sea with mere word was not wasted on the disciples, and I pray that it is not wasted on you. Jesus Christ is creator, sustainer, and the goal of the entire universe. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh who gave his life on the cross so that you and I could find forgiveness who was raised again on the third day according to the promises of God, according to Scripture, and he's alive today. And he sits at the right hand of God, and one day he will return 
And he will establish his kingdom here on earth. And he will judge the living and the dead. Are you dead in your sins still? Or are you alive to God through Christ? Who is Jesus Christ in your life? Is he your God? Is he your Savior? Have you trusted in him? For all of us who have one final word of encouragement, the next time you have one of those days, consider this. You know, the fact that Jesus Christ is the creator, sustainer, and the goal of everything brings us to the ultimate grand logic in this message. And that is this. He can meet every need we will have in this life or in the world to come. And also because Jesus is Lord of the universe... Nothing happens by accident. He's in control of all things. Though we may die, if he does not return soon, we are in his omnipotent, loving hand, and he will take care of us always, even to the end of this age. A woman once said to D.L. Moody, I have found a wonderful promise in Scripture. And she quoted Psalm 56.3, which said, When I am afraid... I will trust in thee. To which Mr. Moody replied, Let me share with you a better one that I have found. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust in him and not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, may we not be afraid. As we encounter those days, one of those days, those sudden moments in life where our world seems to be turned upside down, And really, when you turn it upside down, you make it right side up. God, may the storms and trials of our life, may we consider it joyful. May we have an attitude of gratitude and praise. May we continue to praise your your name with our lips so that others are attracted to Jesus Christ, your provision for our sins. God, I pray for those who are here and may not know you, that they would trust in you today, that they would turn from sin, acknowledge their wrongdoings before you, that they would trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of their sins, his death on the cross on their behalf, and the power of their resurrection to raise them to the newness of life. And God, I pray for all your people who have been born again by your will and not by any efforts of our own, that when we go through these difficult times, these storms of life, that we will endure them in such a way and persevere with such joy and gentleness and peace and love and self-control that those who have no hope will put their faith and trust in the only hope, the only name under heaven by which men can be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.